Greetings and welcome back to The Dive, the weekly podcast series in which we examine topics that were brought up in the previous week's Daf Yomi study and look at them more in depth in what's called Iyun. My name is Yitzchak Shalom, and I'm delighted to be back with you this week. Uh, we're going to look at a sugya that we're really, as of today's date, in the middle of in Daf Yomi, and that is the sugya of Chanukah. And uh, the sugya of Chanukah, as is well known, occupies approximately three daf towards the beginning of the second parak of Shabbat. And so a few uh, prefatory remarks about that particular issue uh, are in order. And uh, this shiur is really going to be about um, not only Chanukah, but about the two centers of Torah study between the third and sixth centuries which are Eretz Yisrael and Bavel, and the interplay and what we have when we look at a page of, uh, of Gemara, of um, Talmud Bavli, what we're actually looking at. And um, if you peeked ahead at the source material, you might have seen some color coding. I'll explain the color coding as we get there. It'll help us decipher, uh, decipher this. But for, first of all, for the uh, introductory mark, which is vital towards understanding the issue of Hanukkah. Um, the uh, the Shas, Shishas Sidre Mishnah, has an entire order, which we call Moed, which is devoted to the calendar. And Moed has in it Masachet Shabbat, and even another Masachet related to Shabbat, which is Eruvin. It has a Masachet of Yom Tov, which we call Beitzah. It has a Masachet devoted to Pesach, called Psachim. It has a Masachet devoted to uh, Rosh Hashanah, to Yom Kippur, to Sukkot. Uh, it even has a Masachet that is somewhat sort of devoted to Purim, which is Megillah, and then one devoted to the fast days throughout the year, chiefly fast days that are called because of dire circumstances that are happening on the spot, which is Masachet Tanit. We could certainly relate to that in these days. Uh, and uh, and then several other Masachetot that have to do with things chiefly related to the Mikdash, such, such as Chagiga and Shkalim along with uh, Masachet Moed Katan, which is about Chol HaMoed. The one glaring omission from the entire corpus is Chanukah. Um, and there is no Masachet Chanukah. There's no uh, book about Chanukah. Not only that, but Chanukah is almost completely omitted from the entire Mishneh corpus. Uh, there are no Mishneyot that deal with the mitzvah of Ner Chanukah, Chanukah is mentioned in the Mishnah in several contexts, a couple of them historic in Masachet Midot. They talk about the uh, the menorah of the Beit HaMikdash, uh, a couple of them in Masachet Megillah, referring to Kriyat Torah. actually one of them referring to Kriyat Torah. one of them in Masachet Bikurim, referring to Chanukah as a time of the year, the last time uh, at which Bikurim can be said, meaning from Shavuot till Chanukah. Uh, and the one mention of Hanukkah at all in the context of its own mitzvah, which is near Hanukkah, is very tangential and very ancillary, and that is at the end of the sixth parak of Masachet Bavakama in a discussion about the damage of Eish. Uh, the Gemara there, uh, the Mishnah there, uh, talks about the circumstance where a, uh, a storekeeper might put his torch outside of his store and if that causes a fire by caught on a burden that a passing animal has on its back, as the example there, then the storekeeper is liable because he had no right to put his lantern outside. And Rabbi Yehuda's opinion is that it was near Hanukkah, he is exempt. And that's it. And then the Gemara quotes that both there and 
here and discusses whether that means something about where near Hanukkah is to be placed, but Hanukkah is really omitted. Why is Hanukkah omitted? There are several explanations which are suggested, uh, both within our own scholarly uh, world of the uh, of the Achronim and also by, uh, by academic scholars. Uh, one of the famous comments, which is uh, which I've heard in the name of the Chatam Sofer, uh, which is that Rabbi Yudha Nasi, who was the compiler of the Mishnah, himself was a member of the Davidic family, and they claimed lineage. Of course, he was son after father going back to Hillel, who claimed lineage going back to David HaMelech, and as such, they were not happy with the Hasmoneans, who, subsequent to their wonderful victory that we celebrate, and the miraculous victory that we celebrate, on Hanukkah every year, then it took over the monarchy. Um, that's one piece of the puzzle. There's another, which is far more likely as the reason, is that it turned out the Hasmonean kings were just as bad, if not worse, actually worse, than the, um, than the uh, Greek despots and the Romans that followed, at least for a time, and, uh, and the rabbis mince no words and are not at all happy with Tasmanian kings, one who is really subject to their ire and anger is Alexander Yanai, um, and uh, and story in Masachet Kiddushin of his butchering the Chachamim, and so it's likely that the whole story of Hanukkah is something that was a little bit uh, in disfavor among that circle of Chachamim. There is yet another reason, which is more political, but which... Um, which has kind of two pieces to it, but both are worthy of consideration. One is that living under Roman rule, which was the reality at the time of the composition and compilation of the Mishnah, of course, none of it was written down, but when it was, when it was composed um, and when those Mishnayot were, were put together, uh, is that living under Roman rule, it, was, it would be politically dangerous to publicize a celebration of a Jewish rebellion against overlords. The fact that the Hasmoneans were allied with Rome and actually had contact with Rome would not have helped very much a few hundred years after the event. Um, There is a second piece to that puzzle, which is, or the second piece to that answer, which is that it is likely, and people have made this suggestion, that it was just seemingly a, um, a almost uh, a, a, a vain celebration or a painful celebration to celebrate Jewish military victory while under the heel of the oppression of Rome. And so it was sort of, not silenced, but it was quieted. That one thing is certainly true is that the military aspect of the victory and the political slash nationalistic aspect of the victory um, certainly took a backseat to the more spiritual element, as reflected in the fact that the one mitzvah that we have on, on, on Hanukkah is Ner Hanukkah, uh, and, uh, and that reflects, of course, the spiritual element and highlighting the pasuk in Zechariah, which, of course, we read in the Haftaran, Shabbat Hanukkah. And so that, that may be the reason. A whole number of possible reasons. The reality is we really don't know, but uh, those are some of the suggestions that have been made over the centuries as to why there is no Masechet Hanukkah. However, there clearly were teachings about Hanukkah, uh, and these teachings took place in both Eretz Yisrael and in Bavel. Now, does that mean that in Eretz Yisrael and Bavel there were sects, not sects exactly, but there were groups, uh, perhaps ideological groups, that felt differently about Hanukkah and felt that it should be highlighted and were teaching these, or was it always taught more under wraps, but that they were certainly there? 
Either way, we do have quite a number of seemingly brightot, and I'll, I'll explain what I mean by seemingly when we get into the ta- into the uh, text itself, and certainly shmatot or shmuot. A shmata or a memra is a halachic statement made by one of the chachamim after the composition, after the canonization of the Mishnah, like Rav and Shmuel and any of the rabbis afterwards, who would make their halachic statements. Those are called shmata, really with shmuah, a heard statement, a past, an oral tradition uh, that's passed on. That's a halachic statement. And as we've discussed many times, Mishnayot, Braitot, Shmuot, Memrot are all in Hebrew, are all concise, relatively concise. Um, and as opposed to the discussion, which we call Shaklavitarya, the give and take, which is in Aramaic and is not necessarily concise. Um, and uh, and we're going to see a lot about that in this year, because this year will be a lot about the general methodology of the study of Gemara, or at least one aspect of it. Um, okay, so the second piece of introduction, which is going to hit to the methodology point, is that when you're looking at a page of Talmud Bavli, and let's roll it back, when you're looking at a Mishnah, a text of a Mishnah, our impression, because this is the way we're used to reading in the, the last thousand years of literature, we're used to reading books that somebody composed. And if it's an anthology, then several different people composed separate pieces and they're published together. That's the way we're accustomed to looking at it. So we look at a Mishnah, we assume somebody composed it. And at a later point, after being passed down orally over the course of a number of generations, maybe as much as 600 years, it finally got committed to writing. And we understand why there's variations between different manuscripts, because it was one scribe wrote it this way, one scribe wrote it that way. Uh, Perhaps it was memorized in two different fashions. We understand that. However, that is not necessarily the case in all Mishnayot. There are Mishnayot themselves that tell us that they are made up of two chronological layers. Uh, For instance, the Mishnah in the fifth parak of uh, of Ketubot uh, tells us about what the rule originally was, Uh, that if a uh, man was betrothed to a girl and 12 months after after they decided to set a wedding date, it came and he was still dragging his feet. He was liable still to uh, start to start supporting her as a husband. Uh, And it was sort of a fine to get him to to get moving and and marry her. And that if he was a Kohen, she would start eating truma. And then there was a machlok at Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Tarfon, how much truma, how much chulin she would get. And then the... Mishnah says, Zu Mishnah Rishonah, that was the original teaching. Aval Beitin Shalacharehem Amru, the later Beitin said that a woman does not get truma until she actually is married to the guy. Now, the reasons for that are way beyond our context, but what I mean is that the Mishnah itself telegraphs that it is made up of several chronological layers, meaning that the first layer of the Mishnah that you're reading was the rule that existed before that second Beitin came along, and that was the way the Mishnah was taught, and then there was another layer added on, when at a later point, a later Beit Din ruled that that rule is no longer the, uh, the, the guiding rule, and we've got a different rule. And there are numerous examples of that. There are also many examples of chronological layers in Mishnah that we have to dig a little bit to see, but a great example of that is the first Mishnah in Masachet Kiddushin. Uh, Masachet Kiddushin begins with, Ha'ishani Knet B'Shalosh Drachim, 
A woman is acquired, becomes a wife, however you want to translate it, in three manners, and she becomes independent or acquires her own independence in two manners. And then it says, That she's acquired through or becomes a wife, become through Kesef, Shtar and Bia. And then the Mishnah says, Bekesef. A huge machlok, a dispute, huge in the sense of the spectrum and the range between Beit Shammai Hill, how much money is needed. And then the Mishnah says, How much is the pruta? And it tells us using a different coin. So it seems fairly clear that we have several layers here. Is that the first thing is, it says, a woman is acquired in three ways. Now, the truth is that once you tell me Kesef, Shtar, and Bia, you don't need to tell me that there's three, because anybody can count Kesef, Shtar, Bia. So it's likely that that was the first layer of the Mishnah, very old Mishnah, the oldest Mishnayot that we have, all operated as number schemes. Uh, there are five of this, and for this, you could see a remnant of it in, in Pirkei Avot, in the uh, fifth parak, when there's a lot of numbers. But uh, there's, and it was a mnemonic device. There's three of those, and there's four of those, and there's seven of those, and a few. It's an easier way to remember and kind of count off the list. Uh, evidently, at some later point, there was some dispute as to what those three ways are. So the later layer of the Mishnah then added in what the three ways are, Kesef, Shtar, and Bia. And then, at a later point, there was a dispute, and we know when that point was. It was when Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel, likely the second generation of Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel, which is uh, around the middle of the first century, uh, disputed how much money involved. So we record that machloket. And at a later point, somewhere after the destruction, likely, um, the pruta that was mentioned by Beit Hillel uh, was, became of an unspecified worth. We didn't know what it was. So they had to use a contemporary coin, which is an Italian coin, a Roman coin, the Isari Talki, and to say it's one-eighth of those. And so even in one Mishnah, where it doesn't state overtly, this is what they used to say, but we have something else to say, you can sense chronological layers. The reason I'm saying that is because the same is very true, it can't be very true, the same is true when you look in the Gemara. When we look at a Gemara, and again, we're, we're guided, we're, we're kind of uh, set up by a thousand years of literature uh, to read something as a composition of someone. Uh, but the Gemara is not a composition. The, the Gemara is a transcript of discussions that take place in which texts as old as 3,000 years, Psukim, texts as old as 2,000 years, early Mishnayot, texts as old as 1,900 years, later Mishnayot and Breitot, texts as old as maybe 1,700 years, statements of the Amorim, and then all of that is being discussed 1,500 years ago in a Beit Midrash, and you're listening to the transcript of that discussion with all of those quotes, but the quotes are coming from earlier times. And so when we study a sugya, it's critical to be able to, to pick apart, and the Rishonim do this on the spot regularly. They say this really is part of the original statement, and this is part of the discussion, because you can't really follow what's going on otherwise. In some sugyot, um, and the truth is number of, and quite a number of sugyot, there is an yet another issue of layers to look at, and they're not chronological layers, but they're geographical layers. Because remember, there is the Torah of Eretz Yisrael that's being brought by the Nechute, by Rav Dimi and by, by Ravin and by Rav Yitzchak Yehuda, all sorts of other Chachamim who traveled from Rav Barbachana, who traveled from Tiveria to, to typically to Pumbadita, and would report the Torah of, typically of, Rabbi Yochanan, or Rabbi Elazar Resh Lakish, 
who are from Tveria in Bavel, and then it became the focus of discussion in Bavel. And so we have to also discern how much of what we're reading is Torah to Eretz Yisrael, and how much of what we're reading is the local Torah, and then how is that being dissected? And it's critical for understanding. We'll see in our sugya that without that, it's really hard to understand the sugya and understand what's going on. Um, and um, last, well, well, that's enough of an introduction. Let's get into the sugya. Um, okay, the, uh, the, here's what happened, going back to our original problem, which is there is no Masachet Hanukkah, but since there were uh, quite a number of uh, Breitot and Shma'atot, uh, or Shmuot, relating to Hanukkah, the editors of the Gemara operating in the 5th, 6th, 7th centuries uh, had to put them somewhere, wanted to put them somewhere, and the easiest entry point was the second parak of Masachet Shabbat. Um, that led to some other interesting things. I'll mention one of them in a second. But uh, the reason for that is because the second parak of Masachat Shabbat is all about the proper wicks and oils that may be used for Hadlakat Ner Shabbat. Hadlakat Ner Shabbat, Hadlakat Ner Chanukah. It was kind of an entry point. And the actual entry point is the Sugya Andaf Chafalaf Amur Aleph, not where we're starting here, but, uh, but earlier than that, where the um, the list of prohibited, because of inferior quality, prohibited wicks and oils that may be used for Shabbat is then compared to the issue of using for the menorah and the Beit HaMikdash. And from there it moves to Hanukkah. And then we have a three-way machlokah, very famous, between Rav Huna, Rav Chista, and Rav, about um, whether or not the uh, invalid oils and wicks may be used uh, for Ner Hanukkah, whether they may be used for Ner Hanukkah um, at any time or only on uh, on the weekday or or not at all. And uh, in the end, we rule like Rav, which is they can be used both weekday and Shabbat of Hanukkah for Ner Hanukkah, and the reasons are part of that discussion. And that becomes the entry point, and then you have three daf that are solely about Hanukkah, and that's what we're in the middle of in daf Yomi here, so that's what we're going to study. Now you can, I, I provided the pages of the Gemara, just so you'd see where they are. Uh, however, we have a vocalized uh, Gemara here in front of us on page one of the handout, and that's what we're going to look through. But on the way, I'm going to ask some questions, and don't turn the page yet, or don't scroll down to the next page, um, because let's just take a look at this. We're looking at it, as we look at the page of the Gemara, the only difference is that there's vowels, there's some punctuation, and there's some indentation and paragraph breaks. And I broke the pieces that we're looking into looking at into eight, yes, that was deliberate, Hanukkah, into eight sections. But the first piece that we're looking at, I broke into four sections. Um, and then I took three other selections from other places, the last of which has also two subsections. And so a total of eight. Okay, let's take a look at the sugya. Tanur Rabbanan. Now, Tanur Rabbanan is, a, is an introduction, which means the rabbis taught, or the students taught. But Tanu, which is an Aramaic word, uh, means shanu, they taught, and it's part of meaning that they repeated. And it's a code word which the Gemara uses to introduce a breita, which means this is a breita. Okay? Mitzvat Chanukah ner ish uveto. So the first thing to notice right away is that Mitzvat Chanukah is an odd phrase. All right? Mitzvat Chanukah ner ish uveto. It, we would think it would be Mitzvat ner Chanukah ner ish uveto, but it's Mitzvat Chanukah ner ish uveto. All right, that the mitzvah of Hanukkah is a ner for a man and his household. Ve'ham mehadrin ner l'chol achad ve'achad. 
The people who are mehadrin, and we'll look at that word in a minute, is a nair for each person. Now, what does a nair for each person mean? So, as we will see, um, as, as those who take a look, we're not going to see it in the shiur, but famously in the Rambam's example of this is that the person lighting candles lights per the amount of people in the house, meaning only one person's lighting, but how many do you light? So, if you have a house with seven people, if you're doing the basic mitzvah, the first night you light one candle, the second night one candle, the whole light, the whole week costs you, the whole Hanukkah costs you eight candles. If you're going to follow Mahadrin, then the first night you light seven, and the next night seven, and it costs you 56, uh, amount of people times eight. All right, which seems to mean the super duper uh, performance, is Beit Shammai Omrim Yom Madlik Mikan it's very famous that Beit Shammai says on the first day you light eight and then you go descend to the next day seven, etc., until you get to one. But says on the first day you light one and then you continue moving up till you get to eight. Now, there's a whole host of problems with this, but I'm going to point out three of them. One of them is that the meaning of the word mehadrin. So if we translate mehadrin as the Hebrew word mehadrin, we would say the people who beautify the mitzvah. Um, and then we'd say, okay, somehow it's beautifying the mitzvah by having more candles. And not, not just more candles, but candles that represent each person in the house. And the way to really, really beautify the mitzvah is to change the number of candles each night uh, to reflect something, and we'll see what that something is. The obvious first avenue is to reflect uh, how many nights there are of Hanukkah or what night it is. All right, so that's problem one, is what mahadrin means, because if we read it in that way, we, we wouldn't have a problem. We would understand what it means. We would have a different question, which is question number two. But if we read mahadrin as an Aramaic word, and why would you want to do that? I have no idea. Then mahadrin means those who run after, which would mean those who run after mitzvot. All right, well, then I get it. Mahadrin, those who run after mitzvot, which means the zealous people do it differently. Which means, and which means this is now kind of a parallel to the Hebrew meaning of Mahadrin, but it has a different meaning uh, just as far as the word goes. What's interesting is that Rashi clearly reads this as an Aramaic word. He says, Mahadrin achar hamitzvot. Achar, the preposition after to follow, to, to follow, doesn't work with lahader if meaning it means to beautify. It would be Mahadrin eta mitzvot. He says, achar hamitzvot, so it must mean that you are running after the mitzvot. But why is Rashi interpreting this word as an Aramaic word? And by the way, Babylonian Aramaic word. All right, that's one question. Um, second question is, mehadrin minha mehadrin. Now, what is that about? Meaning, if there is a better way to do something, so why is there suddenly an even better way? You know, if somebody wants to do it the better way, there should be a better way. Here's the standard way, and here's the better way. Which really leads us, that's not much of a question, but it really is the third question, which is a huge question, which is we do not find anywhere else in halacha, not when it comes to Seder Shal Pesach, and not when it comes to uh, to Sukkot, and not when it comes to Yom Kippur, and not when it comes to uh, to business ethics, anything. This phrase, Mahadrin Minah Mahadrin, doesn't exist anywhere else. In fact, Mahadrin is not even something that exists anywhere else. Um, and we're kind of surprised is why Hanukkah of all places, which as I mentioned in the introduction, is not treated with such great uh, love by all of the Chachamim, 
and it, as I said, it's somewhat uh, overlooked in some in from some perspectives. Suddenly, it's mehadrin minah mehadrin. It's very very strange. And so the fourth question, because Pesach's coming, the fourth question is that um, why are Beit Shemai and Beit Hillel having a machloket about mehadrin minah mehadrin? In other words, mitzvot have parameters, ways to do them, time, how much, how long, who does it, parameters. And in those parameters, we have a machloket about what the minimal or maximal or um, ideal way to do it is, machloket. But once we've established what the basic, the baseline of the mitzvah is, and then say, and if you want to do more, here's how to do more, have a machloket there. Again, it's something that is unmatched. So we have... Two things here that are absolutely unmatched, which is mahadrin min hamadrin as a concept and as a phrase, and second of all, to have a machloket about some added feature of a mitzvah is very strange. The strangeness will continue, and I'll just make this comment and something I've said in Shir numerous times. Um, and I'll make this comment here: is this is a fairly well-known sugya in in many cases in yeshiva high school and sometimes in yeshiva gedola. Come close to Hanukkah time. People take a break, maybe from what they're doing, take a week, and they study these sugyot. And the sugyot are so well known. You ask everybody, Beit Shemai, Beit Hillel, sure, it goes down, it goes up. We don't stop to think about what the difficulties are. And it's something that's in general a, a difficulty with teaching a text that's well known, or shall we say well traversed, is that it's a text that's seen often sometimes people don't realize the questions that are sitting there because we're so accustomed to it. Um, and so let's take a look. Amar Ula. So Ula tells us the following. Now Ula, if you remember, is one of the Nechute. Ula comes from Eretz Yisrael and he comes to Bavel and he brings us the Torah of Bavel and Torah of Rabbi Yochanan. And he tells us a story. So two of the Amoraim in the West, the West being Eretz Yisrael, had a disagreement. About this, Rabbi Yosi Baravin, Rabbi Yosi Barzvida. Just a comment here is Rabbi Yosi Baravin and Rabbi Yosi Barzvida are quoted new, uh, several times in Bavli uh, as having a disagreement, and every time the following happens: Charamar and Charamar, which means they're quoted, meaning they're cited as having a dispute, and then it says one of them said and the other one said, and we never know which one of the Yosi said which, and the reason seems to be pretty obvious that their name is both of them have the name Yosi. So it wasn't clear which one said which. So he said one of them said this, and one of them said that. We're not sure whom, uh, who is the author of which position. But one of them said, Tom, now that means this is a report now from Eretz Yisrael coming to Bavel. And notice that in Eretz Yisrael, they're engaged in trying to figure out what Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel are discussing. So one of them had the approach that Beit Shammai's position is we want to go 876 because you want to announce publicly how many days or identify how many days there are yet to go. There's seven days to go, six days to go, etc. Until the last night, there's one day to go. And and the Beit Hillel's position is how many days have passed. So you have five candles out, you know it's the five, fifth day, already four have passed. Chanamar, uh, the other one said, that Beit Shammai's reason is to follow the model of the Parim on Sukkot, and I'll get back to that in a minute. And Beit Hillel's reason is that we go up in Kedushah. Now let me clarify these two things, and then maybe we'll get a sense of what this broader Machloket is about. <coughs> um, one of them said, uh, On Sukkot, 
but the Torah commands us to bring a lot of korbanot, 14 lambs and two rams, and on the first day, 13 bulls, the next day, 12 bulls, etc., down to on the seventh day, there's seven bulls. And famous all sorts of midrashim about the fact that the seven the bulls count add up to seventy seventy motaulam then shmini atzeret is one that's from Israel lots of beautiful stuff but that's what the Torah commands now why would Beit Shammai take the model of korbanot on Sukkot and apply them to the way that we do Ner Chanukah and the answer is actually an interesting historic um, sidelight but one thing one one something that you can find most explicitly in the second book of Maccabees chapter ten is that uh, according to that report, which is one of the earliest reports we have of Hanukkah, it dates from the, the uh, end of the 2nd century BCE, uh, approximately 50 or so years after the event, uh, is that um, in this letter that was written to the Jews of Alexandria to try to convince them to celebrate this holiday, they report that when they um, defeated the Greeks and were able to come into the Beit HaMikdash, uh, and clean it up, they remembered how they had not been able to celebrate Sukkot, the most recent holiday they had missed. And so therefore, on the 25th of Kislev, when they rededicated the Mizbeach, they took Lulav and Etrog, and they walked around the Mizbeach and celebrated with Hakafot. And indeed, the name of the holiday in the first century B.C. was Sukkot of Kislev, kind of like pattern after Pesach Sheni, perhaps, the idea of a second Sukkot. And therefore, Sukkot is sort of the model for... Hanukkah, and therefore we have the system of, of descending number of korbanot on Sukkot, so use the same thing here, okay? Uh, and Beit Hillel says, Malin Bakodesh Vein Moridin, Malin Bakodesh Vein Moridin is a principle that's stipulated, that's, that's stated in the Mishnah in Masachet Menachot in the context of the tables used for the Lechem Panim, first a marble table, then a gold table, because we go up in Kedusha, and it's applied about four or five times in Shas, but always to things related except for one that's not, but most of them are related to the Beit HaMikdash. And they have to do with the worship in the Beit HaMikdash, was Malin Bakodesh. The one that's not is the, the Gemara and Megillah and the Chav Gimel, where they explain why there's why on a regular weekday when you have 10 psukim, uh, it would be a value to read 4, then 3, then 3, or 3, then 4, then 3. And the reason that 3 and 3 and 4 is good is because Malin Bakodesh. Right, it's a borrowed concept, but the concept is essentially a concept about the Beit HaMikdash. So what it seems, just looking at the text, is that um, one of the positions, one of the Rabiosi's position, is that Beit Hillel and Shammai are disagreeing about how to publicize the length of the holiday or what night it is. And that the other Rabiosi says, no, Beit Shammai and Hillel are disagreeing about which aspect of the Beit HaMikdash should be highlighted when it comes to um, when it comes to Hanukkah, and uh, and so therefore they look at that. Okay, so far so good, uh, except of course for the problem, which is why are they having a disagreement in Eretz Yisrael about a disagreement about Mahadrin min Mahadrin? Again, it takes us back to our third question. We have Mahadrin min Mahadrin, which is a super duper level of practice. And there's a dispute about how to do the super-duper level of practice. And then in Eretz Yisrael, they're having a disagreement about what their reasoning is, and now we'll see it come to an even stranger place. We have a report from Eretz Yisrael. Amar Rabbah Barachana, Amar of Yochan. was a Babylonian. He made Aliyah, and then he came back to visit Bavel, and he would bring the Torah of Rabbi Yochanan. And he said, Shnei Zkenim Ayubat Saidan. Now, this is in the period of Rabbi Yochanan, which means it's the middle of the 3rd century, towards the end of the 3rd century. Rabbi Yochanan died in 299. 
So this is well after um, Rebbe, well after the Mishnah was canonized. And he says there were two elders in Saidan. Saidan is a town on the northern shore of the Kinneret. So one of these kenim lit candles, eight, seven, six. The other one went one, two, three, four. And by the way, nobody said boo about the practices. When you ask one zakein, why are you lighting eight, seven, six? He said, when you ask why are you lighting one, two, three, he would say, which means that it's supporting the second take on the disagreement but then you really got to ask the question, how come perhaps 200 years after that famous bot call came out in the Beit Midrash and said, Halacha Kebet Hillel, the famous Sugyan Eruvin, that Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel had their ongoing disagreement, and finally a voice from heaven came and said, Both of these are the words of the living God, but Halacha follows Beit Hillel. How come here Beit Shammai's practice is considered to be acceptable? Remember, this is a hundred plus years after Rabbi Tarfon, just to bring you back to something we studied not long ago in Dafyomi. If you remember, the Mishnah in Brachot tells us that Rabbi Tarfon, um, uh, the Bachloka, but Shammai says that when you say Kriyat Shema at night, you have to lie down, Bishach Bacha, and you have to stand up for Kriyat Shema in the morning. And Beit Hillel said, no, you say it sitting, standing, leaning, whatever. And Rabbi Tarfon tells a story that he was walking and he laid down by the side of the road and he almost became, uh, became under threat by armed robbers because he was saying Kriyat Shema following Beit Shammai's position. And the rabbi's response to him was, You deserve to die because you violated Beit Hillel. In other words, following Beit Hillel was the only way. And that's where that famous Gemara says, First, that if you do like Beit Shammai, that's fine. If you do like Beit Hillel, that's fine. Then it says, if you do like Beit Shammai, you haven't done anything. And then, if you do like Beit Shammai, chayav mita. So, how do you have Zakenim who are practicing both ways, living in the same town? All's good. And the only issue is, what's the reason for their own practice? And we note it. So, another question in this sugya. Um, I'm realizing as, as we go with time that we're going to do this over the course of two shirim, but that's fine because we all love the sugyot of Hanukkah and there's a lot to mine here. So what we're going to do is continue reading. We'll, st- we'll finish the sugyot that are on the page and I'll ask the questions. And then uh, next week here in Tashem, we'll, we'll look at them again with, uh, with some answers and, and go into some more depth. Um, okay, the, uh, the Gemara then continues. This is all now straight, as you can see in the handout from the Gemara. Uh, source number two is really continuing. It's right after that. Tan Rabbanan, another brighta. Ner Chanukah mitzvah lahanicha al petach beito mi bachutz. That the mitzvah is to put Ner Chanukah, all right, on petach beito mi bachutz. So just one thing about the language here. Um, actually, let's finish the brighta and we'll look at it. So the mitzvah is to put it by your door on the outside. By, I mean, the way that the word is meant in English, next to your door on the outside. If you live in an aliyah, we'll talk about what that means, but right now we'll just translate it as an upstairs place. Then you put it in the window, which is right next to the adjacent to the public area. In times of danger, you put it on your table, and that's enough. Now, the rule here is very straightforward, and it's a bright, very nice. However, there's couple problems from the get-go. One of them in the language, and one of them in Rashi. Uh, Ner Chanukah. Now, 
what is the grammar of that? What is the, the, the gender of that? So ner is masculine, even though the, the plural is nerot, but it's nerot yafim. It's, the, it's, a, it's a masculine word that has the uh, irregular ending, which is feminine, like makom, mekomot, but nonetheless, it's still masculine. And so therefore, it should be ner chanukah mitzvah lahani chol, because we're saying you should put it, it being the ner, which is masculine. And yet it's mitzvah hanicha to place it feminine. So what's the feminine word here that's being placed? That's well, seemingly a small thing. It's actually not. Um, the, the bigger problem, at least the more obvious big problem, is the end of this b'rita, which says, v'sha'ata sakana. When you're in times of danger, then menicha al shulchano v'dayo. You put it on your table, meaning when there's danger, and clearly the danger has something to do with endangering yourself by putting your Ner Hanukkah outside or public display, then you can put it inside on your table and that's good enough. Um, so Rashi on the spot says, what to Vishata Sakana? That the local uh, pagans had a fire festival in the winter and they would uh, make trouble for anybody who had a fire going anywhere but in their pagan temple. This is re- referencing the Zoroastrian cult. Uh, and he references a Gemara that we're going to get to later on in uh, in the third parak in Kira, uh, a story about Rav uh, and permitting a candle to be moved on Shabbat because the uh, Chabarim, the uh, the Zoroastrian priests, would come and make trouble, and um, and so that's the Shata Sakana. But here's the problem: Rashi is commenting on a Brayta. The Brayta we assume, like all Braytot, we think, was composed in Eretz Yisrael. If it's composed in Eretz Yisrael during the period of the Mishnah, meaning leading up to the end of the second century, then why is he referencing the Zoroastrian priests who only got that power in the middle of the third, around a third of the way into the third century, when the Sasanians took over for the Parthians and elevated the Zoroastrian priests to that position. In other words, all of those stories of the Chabarim, as they're called, making trouble for people, all happen in the period of Rav and Shmuel and later. And so why would a Brayta be referencing Shata Sakana to something that's both geographically and temporally off? So it's it's kind of difficult. All right, so we've asked two questions on section number two, which is, why is the gender feminine? And second of all, what's the Shata Sakana? Okay, now uh, we're going to take a look at source number three, and we're not even going to finish all the sources in this year, but um, we're going to look at source number three, and we're going to end with that, and we're going to pick it up exactly at that point next week in the Shi'or. Amar Rava. Um, so Rava, of course, is a Chacham uh, in Bavel, uh, fourth, fourth generation. Tzarich ner acheret lihishtamesh leora. You need another candle if you want to use its light. Its light, leora meaning the light of the Ner Hanukkah. And again, we have the same problem, which is Ner is masculine, so it should be the Shtamesh Le'oro. So what's Le'ora? But, of course, we're all familiar with this halacha, which is what we call the Shamash, which means if you want to read using Ner Hanukkah, you have to have another candle there because for one reason or another, and the Gemara goes into it, you're not allowed to use the light of Ner Hanukkah. For what? Is it for everything? Is it only for mundane things? Machloket. But if there's a bonfire going, you don't need it, which means that there is a fire going in the fireplace, or there are lights on, or in some other way the place is illuminated, then you don't need an eracheret, 
And then, But if the fellow is an important person, then even though there is a Medura, you still need another Nair. Now, what does that mean? So, Rashi says, meaning it's somebody who always has his own Nair, which, at least from Rashi's perspective, what that means is this is all about awareness on the outside or impression. Somebody comes up and sees somebody sitting next to, uh, uh, sitting next to a candle at night reading. They assume that the candle is for reading. They won't know anything about Hanukkah. If they see that there's a, can- a candle lit and another candle and they're reading with the second candle, then they'll know, or with both of them, they'll know, well, I don't need two for reading, so one must be for something special. Let me ask, let me find out. I'll find out about the nace. Prisume nisa. Very nice. So therefore, if there's already light going on, then I don't need it because if, imagine this, if you walk past somebody's house and you see a well-lit house and you see a candle in the window, you know the candle's not for light, the candle's for something else, and you'll ask. But if he's an Adam Chashuv who always has his own little light, his personal light, then that's not enough because people will say his own personal light is for his own Adam Chashuvness and the other light is for reading, and uh, therefore you won't know, therefore you need a Shamash. Okay, very good. Uh, notice, though, that Rava seems to be referencing a reality that we seem to have left behind a long time ago. Every night past the first night following Beit Hillel, or every night up until the last night following Beit Shammai, you're going to have multiple candles out. You're going to have three on the third night, whatever it may be. So why would you need an Eracheret? What's the purpose of an Eracheret? And there's no mention here of our practice of putting the Shamash at a different height or a different place so it's clearly set off. It just means you have a candle, have another candle. Rava seems to be referencing a reality of one Ner Hanukkah only, and therefore he refers to it in the singular. Again, we have to get to the gender problem, but he refers to it in the singular uh, because that seems to be what he's dealing with. So what happened to Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel? We have to actually end the shear at this point. We're going to pick it up next week with source four, and we're going to go through the rest of these sources. I'll resend this uh, this source sheet, and with added sources, and then we're going to look through them and see if we can figure out what um, what actually is is going on in these sugyot, and what's going on in Bavel, and what's going on with these brightot. And it'll be a delightful time. And hopefully, Mirza Hashem, soon we will have the opportunity to actually congregate in person and learn. In the meantime, we will, uh, we will conclude at this point and wish everybody a Chodesh Shil Geulah and a Chodesh Shil Yeshua and a Chodesh Shil Rifuash Lema.